from deep inside your radio. Way deep. Way deep. That's all I can say. It's so deep, you may not be able to get it out. Ladies and gentlemen, this week, the uh, financial watchdogs, don't worry about it. Your pant, pant leg is safe. The financial watchdogs came out with a, uh, a series of fines against major banks in both the United States and uh, Europe. Um, I think the total was something like four, four billion and change, <laughs> change from a billion. You got that on you? Um, and the reason for the fines, you see, is that these banks, it seems, were uh, colluding, I believe that a darker word would be conspiring, to fix the rates of foreign exchange, for, of currency trading. Of, you know, if you want to trade your dollar for a pound or for a pound for a euro or anything like that, uh, these rates of exchange, which supposedly are set by the market, God bless the market, don't you think, are, were set instead by these banks for, one guesses, their profit. Uh, and yes, once again, nobody was charged with the. Uh, the crime, the underlying crime of all this, it is a crime. Somewhere, somehow. Uh, and the the fines will be paid not by the corporate executives of these banks, but by the shareholders. We're just sitting there going, what? They did what? With my what? The, uh, the fines and, and failure to prosecute uh, part of a policy known as uh, deferred prosecution agreements, which the authorities reach with these miscreant financial institutions. So they don't prosecute them, but might prosecute you in the future uh, if you don't, if you aren't deterred from a future bad acts by these uh, monstrously big fines, which apparently are pocket change to uh, the big banks, because they were fined a similarly large amount just a couple of years ago within the last couple of years, for for fixing the LIBOR rate, which is the London Interbank uh, uh, rate for uh, loans, interest rates on, on loans among the major banks of the world, which set which are ben- benchmarks by which are set the interest rates all over the world. Find big dollars, billions, for fixing that, and uh, the deterrent effect of that was apparently zero, because here they were, fixing the exchange rates on currencies as well. This uh, Now, the, the policy of deferred prosecution agreements is justified by the Justify Department, the Department of Justify, uh, on the grounds that if you prosecute these, uh, these banks as organizations, uh, that will involve them losing certain rights to uh, transact certain kinds of very important business and may have ripple effects throughout the economy because they're so big and so complex. Now, if you uh, prosecuted the individual officers of those banks, of course, none of that would happen. But this is the justification for not prosecuting the banks themselves as corporate entities. And how do those banks get so big and so complex? Well, sir, one big aid to that process happened in the late 1990s, the passage of of a... piece of legislation called the Graham-Bliley-Leach yeah, law, 
which, uh, among other things, ended the Glass-Steagall Act, which was passed during the Depression, to make sure that would never happen again by prohibiting banks from doing both casino banking and retail banking, that is to say, taking your deposit money and at the same time betting on uh, questionable investments. Couldn't do the same thing in the same organization for 30, 40 years. You know, so the Depression would never happen again. It was abolished by this piece of legislation called Graham-Leach-Bliley, signed by Bill Clinton, passed with bipartisan approval by the Congress. And within a few years, another financial disaster. Almost, almost, almost too neat, don't you think? Anyway, just one more piece of evidence, if more were needed, that bipartisanship is not our friend. Hello, welcome to the show. Stars are upside down. It's just a little too much. 
from, where is this, London? Uh, just off Leicester Square, as a matter of fact. You know him. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, oh, oh no. Oh, no. No, 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 no. I'm over here now. I'm over here because this has to happen. There's something called this. Now, news of the warm, won't you? It's been one of those weeks, ladies and gentlemen. And it continues to be. Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen to the warm. The award-winning news of the warm, won't you? Global warming is likely playing a bigger role than previously thought in uh, the dead zones in our oceans, lakes, and rivers around the world. It's only going to get worse, according to a new study. Dead zones occur when fertilizer runoff clogs waterways with nutrients such as nitrogen and phosphorus. That leads to an explosion of microbes that uh, consumes oxygen and leaves the water depleted of oxygen which the marine life need to breathe. Scientists have long known that warmer water increases the problem. A new study in the journal Global Change Biology by Smithsonian Institution researchers found about two dozen different ways biologically, chemically, and physically that climate change worsens that oxygen depletion. Quote, we've underestimated the effect of climate change in dead zones, says the study's lead author. The researchers looked at 476 dead zones. Did you know we had that many? Worldwide, 264 in the United States. Hey, we're probably number one in dead zones. They found that standard computer models predicted that on the average, surface temperatures around those dead zones will increase by about four degrees Fahrenheit to the end of the century, the largest predicted warming, where the St. Lawrence River dumps into the ocean in Canada. The most prominent U.S. dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico and the Chesapeake Bay projected to warm four degrees and nearly five degrees, respectively. You're welcome. Warmer water holds less oxygen. Who knew? Adding to the problem from runoff, says co-author of the study, but warmer water also affects dead zones by keeping the water more separate so that oxygen-poor deep water mixes less. It's like Italian dressing that you haven't shaken, where you have the oil and water separate, says the co-author of the study. When the water gets warmer, marine life's metabolism increases. Whose doesn't? Making them require more oxygen just as the oxygen levels are dropping. Other ways that climate change affects dead zones includes longer summers, ocean acidification, and changing wind and current patterns, said the study. It's like, it's like changing wind in your salad. Global warming stops at nothing, not even the groundwater. A new study by researchers from ETH Zurich and KIT reveals, this according to Science Daily, which probably knows what those initials stand for, the groundwater's temperature profiles echo those of the atmosphere although damped and delayed, much like this program. For their study, the researchers were able to fall back on uninterrupted long-term temperature measurements of groundwater flows around the sites of Cologne and Karlsruhe, where the operators of the local waterworks have been measuring the temperatures of the groundwater, which is largely uninfluenced by humans for 40 years, a unique commodity for researchers. Based on the readings, researchers were able to demonstrate that the groundwater is not just warming up. The warming stages occurred as echoes of the same stages in the atmosphere. Quote, global warmings reflected directly in the groundwater with a certain time lag and damped. 
The researchers published their study in the journal Hydrology and Earth System Sciences. I read it for the ads. The data also reveals that the groundwater close to the surface, down to a depth of around 60 meters, has warmed up significantly statistically in the course of climate change over the last 40 years. This water heating follows the warming pattern of the local and regional climate, which in turn mirrors that of climate change. So couldn't we heat our homes with groundwater now? Just thinking outside the uh, thing. This summer has seen the highest global mean sea surface temperatures ever recorded since their systematic measuring started. Temperatures even exceed those of the record-breaking 1998 El Nino year. Ooh, El Nino, what a year that was. This according to Axel Timmerman, climate scientist and professor studying variability of the global climate system at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. From 2000 to 2013, the global ocean surface temperature rise did pause in spite of increasing greenhouse gas concentrations. This period, referred to as the global warming hiatus, raised a lot of public and scientific interest. However, as of April 2014, that's this year, ocean warming has picked up speed again, according to Timmerman's analysis. The ocean warming this year is mostly due to the North Pacific, which has warmed far beyond any recorded value and has shifted hurricane tracks, weakened trade winds, and produced coral blanching in the Hawaiian Islands, he says. Wasn't she a starlet in the 40s, coral blanch? He describes the effects leading up to the upswing as follows. Sea surface temperatures started to rise unusually. Oh, I'll, I'll skip the, the process here. Record-breaking greenhouse gas concentrations and anomalously weak, anomalously weak North Pacific summer trade winds, which usually cool the ocean, have contributed further to the rise in sea surface temperatures. The warm temperatures now extend in a wide swath from just north of Papua New Guinea to the Gulf of Alaska, he says. Current record-breaking temperatures indicate the 14-year-long pause in ocean warming has come to an end. Despite now some possibly good news for a change in news of the warm, good news of the warm to you, ladies and gentlemen. Despite large temperature increases in Alaska in recent decades, you can see it from here. A new analysis of NASA airborne data finds that methane is not being released from Alaskan soils into the atmosphere at unusually high rates, as had been predicted. And you've heard those predictions on this broadcast. The new result shows the changes in that part of the Arctic have not yet had enough impact to affect the global methane budget. This from Science Daily. This is important because methane is, you know, the third most important common greenhouse gas in the atmosphere is 33 times more effective than carbon dioxide at trapping heat in the atmosphere and adding to greenhouse-style warming. High concentrations of atmospheric methane have been measured at individual Arctic sites, especially in Siberia. To you, Putin, this adds to the concern that massive methane releases are already occurring in the far north. But NASA's Carbon in Arctic Reservoirs Vulnerability Experiment is the first to establish emission rates for a large region of the Arctic. In it, researchers analyzed methane measurements made over Alaska from May through September two years ago. They estimated emission rates for the winter months, during most of which no methane was released because the soil was frozen. Well, just freeze it in the summer. What is so hard about that? Alaska composes about 1% of Earth's total land area. Its estimated annual emissions a couple of years ago equaled about 1% of total global methane emissions. So the Alaskan rate was very close to the global average rate. That's good news, says the lead author of the research, because it means there isn't a large amount of methane coming out of the ground yet. If we just put saran wrap all over the ground in Alaska, wouldn't that keep 
I'm, I'm thinking. Give me credit for that. I'm coming up. Today's climate models predict a 50% increase in lightning strikes across the United States during this century. This also from Science Daily. As a result of warming temperatures associated with climate change, reporting in the November 14th issue of the journal Science. What's that all about? UC Berkeley climate scientist David Rumps and his colleagues look at predictions of precipitation and cloud buoyancy in 11 different climate models and conclude that their combined effect will generate more frequent electrical discharges excuse me, uh, to the ground, with warming thunderstorms become more explosive, he said. This has to, to uh, do with water vapor, which is the fuel for explosive deep convection in the atmosphere. Warming causes there to be more water vapor in the atmosphere. If you have more fuel lying around when you get ignition, it can go big time. That's scientific talk, I guess. Big time. More lightning strikes mean more human injuries and more wildfires. But wouldn't it be t- mean if we harness that electricity to uh, light our cities? More lightning, more electricity, less burning of thing for this thing. These ideas now just flowing, flowing. And uh, finally, global warming is likely playing a bigger role. No, done it. Done. News of the warm is done. That's why it's a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, what the frack? California officials allowed oil and gas companies to pump nearly 3 billion gallons of wastewater into underground aquifers that could have been used for drinking water or irrigation. This is not the good news department. These aquifers are supposed to be off limits to that kind of activity, protected by the EPA, that bad old EPA. It's inexcusable, says Holland Kretzman at the Center for Biological Diversity in San Francisco, which is, I think, this country's home of biological diversity at least in human form, at a time when California is experiencing one of the worst droughts in history where allowing oil companies to contaminate what could otherwise be very useful groundwater resources for irrigation and for drinking, says Kretzman. California Department of Conservation's chief deputy director says in multiple different places of the permitting process, an error could have been made. Well, that's, that's stepping up to the plate. There have been past issues that official says where permits were issued to operators that they shouldn't be injecting into those zones, and so we're fixing that. Actually, an active verb fell out of his mouth. The official said oftentimes oil and gas companies re-inject wastewater closer to the surface into aquifers. These injections are supposed to call uh, go into aquifers that the EPA calls exempt, not clean enough for humans to drink or use. But in the state's letter to the EPA, officials admit in at least nine wastewater injection wells, the wastewater was injected into non-exempt or clean aquifers containing what once was high-quality water. But, you know, California doesn't have a shortage of water or anything. We don't have to worry about that. What the frack? And, ladies and gentlemen, it's making headlines, but uh, not this way. The uh, the war against ISIS, the new war in the Middle East. Here's uh, here's what we've learned via the British newspaper, the Telegraph, this weekend. Two of the main rebel groups receiving weapons from the United States to fight the Syrian regime and jihadi groups in Syria. Those are our moderate moderate rebel friends the ones John McCain is so in love with, they've surrendered to Al-Qaeda. 
That's just because John McCain didn't spend enough time with him. He would have given him some more backbone. The U.S. and its allies were relying on Harakat Hazm and the Syrian Revolutionary Front to become part of the ground force that would attack IS that we were building, much like the Iraqi army we built collapsed. For the last six months, the Hazm movement has been receiving heavy weapons from the U.S.-led coalition, including tow anti-tank missiles, the same kind uh, I believe the Reagan administration sent to Iran, the arms for hostages. But this week, Harakat Hazm surrendered military bases and weapons supplies to the al-Nusra front, where the al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria, uh, when that al-Qaeda affiliate stormed villages they controlled in northern Idlib province. Not Adlib, Idlib. It's it's like improv, but with uh, with more direct connection to your id. So it's uh, they work blue. The development came a day after the al-Nusra dealt a final blow to the affiliated SRF, the Syrian Revolutionary Front, storming and capturing the hometown of the group's leader. The attack caused the group, which had already lost the territory to al-Qaeda, to surrender. As a movement, the SRF is effectively finished. Says a Syrian analyst, Nusra has driven them out of their strongholds of Idlib and Hama. The collapse of the SRF and attacks on Harakat Hazm have dramatically weakened the presence of moderate rebel fighting groups in Syria. In the United States, the weapons they supplied falling into the hands of al-Qaeda is a realization of a nightmare. Yes, al-Qaeda now has more U.S. weapons to fight against IS, which has a lot of U.S. weapons. Why don't we just sell weapons to Everybody on the planet, and they can fight each other, and we'll make some change. It's not immediately clear if American tow missiles were among the stockpile surrendered. However, several Al-Nusra members on Twitter announced triumphantly that they did have tow missiles. No, they're not the size of toes. Also, the loss of a group that had been held up to the international media as being exemplary of Western efforts in Syria is a humiliating blow, says the Telegraph, at a time that the U.S. is increasing its military involvement in Syria. In Idlib, Harakat and Hazm gave up their positions to al-Nusra without firing a shot. And some of the men even defected to the jihadists. The moderate rebels in Syria, ladies and gentlemen, they're our friends. With friends like that, you don't need Hungarians. And uh, meanwhile, in the new Iraq, who's, uh, who's taking the lead in fighting the brutal and barbaric IS in Iraq. Well, according to AP, it's, uh, well, according to most reports, it's the Shiite militias since the Iraqi army has collapsed, done in El Foldo. I believe that's Arabic for collapse. Uh, so the Iraqi Shiite militias, who we were fighting against, whom we were fighting against in our in Iraq War II, now they're, now they're the good guys. This changes so fast. Uh, AP reports the Shiite militias can be just as brutal as their sworn sectarian enemies. enemies. In a grisly video recently posted online, a Shiite, can I say that on a radio fighter, shouts the name of a revered imam as he poses beside decapitated bodies. Another militia man sits nearby, grinning as he maims a corpse. The grinning corpse maimer, ladies and gentlemen, for your viewing pleasure. These are our allies. One bearded militiaman explains the bodies are those of fighters who killed our comrades. Another man shouts, our fighters were good guys. These are dogs. That's right, they're not nice to dogs either. The Shiite militias who have answered the call to arms by the government to fight the Islamic State group are growing more brutal 
stoked by a desire to, for revenge against the Sunni extremists who were butchered Shiites who fall into their hands. That vigilantism is posing a challenge for the Shiite-led government in Baghdad where authorities have been embarrassed by international criticism of the militias and are worried about militiamen getting out of control. Sunnis, whom the government is trying to win over, accuse the militias of atrocities and their concerns over the militias' links to Iran and Hezbollah. It's all neat and tidy. And, yes, while the American media are full of tisk-tisking, and appropriately so, perhaps, about the uh, IS release of a, another beheading video of another American aid worker over there. This to keep in mind, if, if you've got the brain space. A man convicted of smuggling heroin became the seventh Pakistani beheaded by, over the past month in Saudi Arabia. The execution was carried out in Riyadh after he was tried and found guilty. So it was you know, legal process. He tried to smuggle a large quantity of heroin inside his intestines. They work hard for the money, the Pakistanis. This latest case brings to 67 the number of foreigners and Saudis executed for crimes this year. And uh, the, by executed, they mean beheaded. Other crimes for which you can be beheaded in Saudi Arabia, I've pointed this out before, rape, murder, armed robbery, and apostasy. You can be beheaded for apostasy in Saudi Arabia. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's fun over there, isn't it? It's a lively... It's a, the joint is jumping. you got to say that. But, uh, but now, ladies and gentlemen, this week at the uh, United Nations in Geneva, a panel was convened to uh, hear the United States report on our past methods of enhanced interrogation. In that uh, meeting, the Obama administration told the panel that the United States had tortured terrorism suspects after 9-11, but it had since taken steps to prevent any future use of unlawful coercive interrogation techniques. Quote, the United States is proud of its record as a leader in respecting, promoting, and defending human rights and the rule of law around the world, says Mary McLeod, the acting legal advisor to the State Department. Quote, but in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, we regrettably did not always live up to our values, unquote. The president has already said the U.S. used torture during the Bush administration, but this amounted to the government's most formal acknowledgement of that fact before the international community. Tom Malinowski, the Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights, said, A little more than 10 years ago, our government was employing interrogation methods that any fair-minded person would believe were torture. We crossed the line, Ms. McLeod added. We take responsibility for that. By responsibility, she means copping to a panel in Geneva. This uh, panel monitors compliance with the United Nations Convention Against Torture. She formally introduced uh, before the panel a new position by the United States government on whether a provision of that treaty, which bans cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment, imposes legal obligations on U.S. conduct overseas, where the U.S. may have control of detainees on uh, 
land, which we either control fully, like Gitmo, or black prisons, black sites, like the CIA had in Poland, among other places. The Bush administration contended that provision applied only on U.S. soil. Thanks to Alberto Gonzalez and John Yu for that interpretation, the Obama administration, after an internal debate, told the U.N. it applied abroad, where the U.S. has governing authority that doesn't include the black sites, the black prisons. Oh, they're gone now. That'll never happen again. And the panel expressed skepticism about American law enforcement and national security practices. Alesso Bruni of Italy, a member of the U.N. Committee, pressed the U.S. delegation to explain Appendix M of the Army Field Manual. Interrogators are now limited to the list of techniques in that manual. It contains special procedures for separating captives in order to prevent them from communicating. The appendix says that prisoners shall receive at least four hours of sleep a day, an amount Bruni said would be sleep deprivation over prolonged periods. The top legal advisor to the Joint Chiefs says that reading the appendix as intended to permit sleep deprivation was a misinterpretation. Bruni was not persuaded. The committee also scrutinized whether the U.S. had adequately investigated the rendition, detention, and interrogation program. A provision of the treaty, which we are a party to, requires parties to investigate and provide accountability for past instances of torture. The American delegation said the U.S. had investigated the CIA program. And the coming publication of a Senate Intelligence Committee report, heavily redacted at the instance of the CIA, would add to the public record. In short, as the president said a couple of months ago, we tortured some folks. You got to remember, we were really afraid. We'd ignored the warnings, and then we got played. There was a panic in the White House, panic at state. Panic at the Pentagon. People working really late. They were patriots. They cared and they fought. What the contractors sold, they bought. So we rendered some Arabs with the help of the blokes. And like it or not, we, we tortured, tortured some folks. We didn't think it was torture per se. That's what the White House counsel said back in the day. Enhanced interrogation is how it was known. So we slapped and waterboarded and froze to the bone. Sure, it violated our values and laws. But we were more scared than when we first saw Jaws. Some very good men did some very bad things. But who among us knows why the case bird sings? So we tormented some Muslims, then went out for some smokes. It hurts to say it, but we, we tortured, tortured some folks.
Now we could look backwards. We could game the blame. We could point fingers. We could wallow in shame. We could punish the guilty for each little flaw, as we're supposed to do under international law. We could say we're sorry, which we never do, because we're exceptional. And so are you. So let's leave it at this. Let's leave it unseen. Let's look to the future and wipe the slate clean. You don't want to pursue this. Neither do I. It would be like busting me now because I used to get high. So let's pretend we don't hear the screams and the croaks and just tell our grandkids we, we torture, torture some folks. No jokes. This is the show from London. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the Apologies of the Week. We're so sorry. The British Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC, has apologized. They have this show called Strictly Come Dancing, which is basically dancing with the stars. But in Britain, the head judge, Len Goodman, swore live on air during last night's show. He appeared to mutter the F word after expressing his delight at a performance by a singer. Simon Webb, winner, winner, chicken dinner, finger licking good, the head judge told the dancing pair after their performance. I tell you, Simon, I think it's his place, actually. Tess, I think it's something about the atmosphere. The audience are behind everyone, the home of dance, he said. Apparently just babbling before appearing to mutter the F word under his breath in disbelief. Presenter Zoe Ball was later forced to tell viewers, I would like to apologize. Len got a little bit carried away with the excitement of the dance. I'm very sorry for the bad language. How about for the gibbering? Dayline Washington, the Justice Department, the Justice Department, has apologized to a federal appeals court for providing inaccurate information about a central issue in a case challenging the constitutionality of a disputed law enforcement power known as national security letters. They're a kind of subpoena that the FBI can issue without court oversight. Don't you know? Post-9-11 kind of thing. The case centers on the constitutionality of a gag rule which forbids companies from disclosing that they have received such letters. The Justice Department said it had misled the court by incorrectly saying that telecommunications companies were permitted to disclose that they had received at least one such letter seeking records about a customer. In a letter unsealed this week, the department said that this misstatement was inadvertent. It is the latest in a series of inaccurate statements that the DOJ and the executive branch has made to other branches of government about surveillance rules and practices, many of which have come to light in the post-Ed Snowden era. Thank him. Republican political consultant Ray Allen, not the sharpshooter from the NBA, has apologized for the language he used to make a prediction to the Washington Post that Virginia House Speaker William J. Howell would beat his primary challenger, Susan Stimson, quote, like a rented mule. I used a poor choice of words, and I apologize to Supervisor Stimson, Allen wrote. I will learn from this mistake, unquote. Dateline Atwater, California, not the one near Los Angeles, or in Los Angeles, actually. But uh, up north, a California school district apologized for a video spoof that ended with a security officer pretending to shoot students from a rival high school with a toy gun. <laughs> That's good fun. The video shows school administrators at 
Buchak Colony High School in Atwater, including the principal dressed in superhero costumes and pretending to kick and punch students at the rival school. It ends with the school security officer pretending to shoot the rival students. The Merced Union High School District released a statement. Immediately addressed the release of the school rivalry video and had it removed from the media site. We apologize for the impact the videos had on the community and want to ensure that everyone that the district does not support or endorse school violence. The issue is being addressed through the personnel office. Uh oh. No, no time was their intent to glamorize or endorse school violence, says the principal. Would I do it again? Obviously not. I apologize for the impact it had on the community, he said. Dadeline, Virginia Beach, Virginia. The city, city's voter registrar apologized this week to voters who encountered technical difficulties casting their ballots last week and said her office is looking for improvements. Many voters vo voiced frustration with problems at the polls, especially with machines that switched their votes from one candidate to another. Election officials attributed the errors to a problem with the AccuVote. Yeah, I'll say Truth in advertising, babe, the AccuVote TSX machine's touchscreen calibration, which they said was tested before Election Day, but may have been damaged in transport to some precincts. I truly am sorry for any voter who was inconvenienced at the polls, said voter registrar Donna Peterson. We did every, Pat Patterson, we did everything possibly could to prepare for the election. She said her office is reviewing how things went to identify needed improvements. Many of the issues should be resolved when the city receives its new paper ballot voting machines soon huh that's an innovation paper ballots why didn't they why didn't they think of that well, montgomery maryland uh, county maryland principal has apologized for not letting parents know about a sex assault involving a school contract worker and a 12 year old student for weeks after the incident or they think he is a bishop and the green party in germany apologized for vic two victims of sexual abuse for its support of pedophile groups in the 1980s we deeply regret these events that are included in our early party history, said Green co-president at the presentation of a report on the party's past. The Green Party's predecessor had taken on the interests of pedophiles by suggesting that sex with minors should be decriminalized, providing the sex was free from violence or the threat of violence. But that was the 80s. Apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Now, uh, you know... That uh, perhaps you know, it was uh, the news week began with the release of some audio tapes featuring Ronald Reagan. Apparently, he had taped his uh, conversations with several foreign leaders, Menachem Begin uh, among them, and Mar Margaret Thatcher, and uh, uh, Assad's father. I'm trying to remember his name. No kidding. No kidding, Assad. Thank you. Uh, he had had these uh, phone conversations with these foreign leaders, tape recorded, you see, so that uh, he would have an accurate uh, accurate uh, documentation of what he said to the foreign leaders in case there was any controversy uh, to arise. And uh, the, the one that uh, got the widest amount of play was a conversation in which he phoned Margaret, then British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, to apologize for not having uh, alerted her before the U.S. sent troops to Grenada. Uh, his, his explanation was that there, there was, there was a, a leak problem on, uh, in the administration. It was not any fear that the, that the British government would leak the information. Uh, and he was uh, quite, quite abashed and sorry and 
she accepted his apology. And uh, so we now who knew that Ronald Reagan was taping? It is, of course, uh, a practice that was that when it, it came into some bad odor uh, after the uh, Nixon administration. But uh, as far as we know, those are the only tapes uh, from the Reagan administration. As far as we know, however, we're, we are in receipt of uh, another tape of Nixon in heaven. So, uh, so uh, just just to review here. Mm. Yep, yep. None, uh, none of the new Watergate books has uh, gotten any traction. No, no, no. no Dean's book wrecks at uh, seventeen thousand something on Amazon. Well, I don't care what people in the jungle think. The, no, no, the uh, Amazon, mm. the uh, the internet book thing. Right. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Because of course, uh, those people don't. No, it's it's the uh, yeah. What with what, what the mosquitoes and the crocodiles and so forth? You'd think the last thing they'd want to read about is some trumped up. So no, no, no real traction for this year's Watergate books. Mm. You think that's uh, it's partly the result of uh, our little operation? I'm not sure. I... Firebombing the book warehouse. You 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 did follow up on that. We had some operational problems with that. For God's sake, Haldeman, a simple little thing well, like... Well, you know, communications up here are not what... Uh, no, I know, but... Uh, even it, at this uh, late date, the engineering people tell me heaven hasn't ent- gone entirely digital yet. But, of course, it's, uh, it's by design, don't you think? Well, in any case, we... Uh, yes, we did transmit the instructions, but as it turns out, uh, they went to the wrong Cubans. The wrong cue. Knock, knock. Anybody in here? Jesus, Ronnie. You're the last person I expected to run into up here. Well, sir, I, I could say the same for you. Sorry for just kind of barging in, but uh, your cloud doesn't seem to have a door on it. Well, the well, last time I looked, no cloud does. Well, they sure do over back in our neck of the woods. Hmm. Plenty of doors, but uh, to be honest with you, no woods at all. <laughs> so, Dick, uh, I haven't seen you since... Uh, well, since we were both alive and kicking. <laughs> Maybe the uh, 88 convention? Well, I'm sure we did meet there, but uh, by that time I was having my little thing, yep, so... Yep, 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 yep. Sorry about that whole... Uh... Oh, listen, Mama used to say to me, just be grateful you're not Nixon. He can't stop remembering. <laughs> you know, just to buck up my spirits and so forth. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Well, if you can't uh, buck up people's spirits, you, you don't belong in the arena. Mm-hmm. So look, Ron, uh, Haldeman and I were just uh, doing some work here. and uh, Working? <laughs> up here? Yeah. Don't tell the big fella I said so, but that sure sounds like hell to me. Well, the old man here was uh, never a good relaxer. We just think... Well, in fairness, I did enjoy just sunning myself and playing cards with uh, Rebozo every once in a great while, although, uh, I'll tell you, this son of a bitch cheated like a... Sure, sure. Well, sir, I'll tell you why I dropped by. Mm. It wasn't all that easy to find this cloud, by the way. You're all the way over on the other side of the sky from, uh, you know, uh, from most of us. But anywho, I just thought I'd... Uh, I'd pick at your brain uh, for a few minutes here, and this uh, this whole taping thing. You, you're probably heaven's rainy expert on all that. Well, I, I don't know about that, but... Uh, oh, sure. I did see they just released some of your tapes. Yeah. Heck of a thing. 
heck of a thing. Yes, sir. A nice little chat with Maggie Thatcher came out and mm -hmm. a few other things. We were, uh, we were kind of amazed you were, uh, you know, that... Uh, you even chose well, to... Well, well, they assured me that as long as I controlled the record button, mm. only the stuff I wanted to preserve actually got recorded. Yeah, well, you see, that was, just, that was the same damn thing they told me. No, but, no, uh, no sir. We, we, we uh, told you that everything was being recorded and that you could go back later. No, and, well, now, you see, Ronnie, this is the value of having taped everything. I can have one of these angels go back, find that conversation, and prove to all the years... <laughs> well, sir, that, uh, what actually happened, I, mm. I now find out as if death isn't full of enough surprises. They, uh, they had some trouble with the button of uh, some kind and it ended up recording some other stuff too. You know, nothing earth-shaking but uh, they've got me uh, telling Gorbachev a joke you know, just to loosen him up a little. You know the one about, uh, oh, I'm buying the Cadillac. Oh, I, I don't uh, I'm not, I mean, I, I have, I've told a few jokes in my time, a few salty ones as a matter of fact. The uh, Sailor on the nuclear sub who uh, hid the codes in his... Well, sir, I'll tell you the story if ever goes into a Cadillac dealer. Yeah, no, I think we could probably skip past the joke to uh, the point. Oh, no, it's okay. No one's taping here, right? I don't think so, but uh, still, no. just to be on the... Uh, no, safety. you never know about this new crowd running this place. Uh, Whole new bunch of Jews, from what I hear. Well, I was just uh, wondering if you fellas had some advice on uh, how to make uh, tapes, you know, uh, disappear or some such. Maybe that eighteen and a half minute gadget you fellas had. You know, uh, might you know, uh, you know what I'm thinking, Haldeman. Well, not exactly, sir. But if we knew where those tapes are being kept, hmm? it's just possible that we could organize uh, some kind of uh, incendiary event. Hmm? You mean a press conference? I think he means uh, more along the lines of, of, of a fire. No, it, it, it would be wrong, but uh, we could do it if, if this time around, we can get hold of the right Cubans. Well, I could, I could definitely get some seraphim on that. Mm. Well, so, tell you what, uh, I'll check back in a couple of days. I have to come over to this neighborhood anyway. Uh, the only place where they have the kind of suits I like anymore. Uh, I'll just uh, leave this open. Wouldn't hurt to uh, have him owing us. No, no, of course.
Ladies and gentlemen, following up on uh, last week's broadcast where uh, your host discussed the fact that several candidates uh, for s- governorships in various states, including one Democrat, had uh, prior to their winning been uh, working in or around the private equity industry. This becomes important because they now, as elected governors, can appoint the members of the boards that decide on the investments made by public employee pension funds, which have been investing increasingly in private equity. You see, it's a system. Now comes news from the International Business Times that executives at investment firms that manage Chicago pension funds have, in the last three years, poured more than more than half a million, more than half a million dollars in contributions into Chicago Mayor Emanuel's campaign operation and political action committees that support him. These contributions appear to flout federal rules banning companies that manage pension funds from financing the campaigns of officials with authority over pension systems. They also potentially conflict with an executive order Emanuel himself signed in 2011 prohibiting city contractors and subcontractors for making campaign donations to city officials. Manuel, as you know, was former chief of staff to President Obama. Former prosecutors, corporate compliance attorneys, and erstwhile officials at the SEC described, not the FCC, the SEC described the donations as a clear breach of the spirit and perhaps of the letter of the SEC's so-called pay-to-play rule, which seeks to prevent pension investments from being doled out as a form of patronage to those who contribute to campaigns. And the International Business Times also reports that in the same state that Illinois Governor-elect Bruce Rauner accepted more than $140,000 worth of campaign donations from executives affiliated with firms in which Illinois pension systems have investments. Campaign donations flowed to Rauner, 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 despite state and federal rules designed to prevent pension investment managers from donating to candidates for public offices that oversee state pension systems as governor he will now appoint the trustees who oversee Illinois pension investment decisions. When the International Business Times first presented the campaign finance documents to officials at the Illinois State Board of Investment late last week, they said they'd never been asked about the donations. Days later, the officials announced they're now conducting a formal review of the system's private investment managers to see if they complied with campaign finance disclosure requirements. Not Louisiana. Illinois. Thank you, Tom. And, as you know, another record poppy crop in Afghanistan. News of AFOC! Already the source of 90% of the world's heroin threatens to exacerbate the drug problem in Russia. And reports Bloomberg News thereby stoke tensions between Putin and the United States. As the biggest market for illicit opiates, Russia is in the front line as the U.S. withdraws from Afghanistan after spending an estimated $7.5 billion in a failed attempt to curb narcotics production. That's $7.5 billion. We'll never see again. Russia now faces a public health crisis and a rise in crime stoked by the flow of Afghan heroin. This failure in Afghanistan affects what I call the new Cold War with Russia, says Robert Legvold, a uh, Russian expert. It supports the views expressed by Putin and his circle that U.S. foreign policy has been intentionally destructive. Oh, I don't think we've, we've, we decided to waste $7.5 billion on Wiping out Poppy, do you? News of AFPAC, ladies and gentlemen, copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
thought there was enough applause there for you. And in the Let Us Try department, the Army Corps of Engineers has approved construction of a coal terminal on a 600-acre site in Plaquemines Parish, Louisiana, which uh, Gulf of Mexico environmental groups call outrageous. This will be the third coal terminal in Plaquemines Parish, so I guess they're short of coal terminals, since they produce so much coal there, which they don't. Critics say this will interfere with a project designed to let Mississippi River sediment flow into and help rebuild Louisiana's disappearing wetlands. Thanks again to the Corps of Engineers for helping. Let them try. Just let them try. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. You send 440 cable system in Japan around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the east coast of North America. By the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet 7.490 megahertz shortwave on the mighty 104 in Berlin. Ich bin ein Radio in Berlin. Around the world by the internet, two different locations, live and archived whenever you want at harryshear.com and kcsn.org. On your smartphone through stitcher.com. And as a free podcast, at Casey, uh, oh no, at uh, www.no.org, Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, and iTunes. And it'd be just like I didn't say that pair of letters there. If you'd agree to join with me then, would you? Already, thank you very much. Uh huh. A reminder unlike what you heard today, Nixon's The One features actual verbatim dialogue in the White House tapes. Drewy and Nutty. You remember them. And uh, episode four is up now. Episode five debuts Tuesday. All free at YouTube. Think of it. The email address for this broadcast and a playlist of the music heard here on. Available along with Cars I Talk t-shirts at harryshare.com. A tip of the show chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago in exile in Hawaii desks. Thanks as always to Pam Halstead. Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans and Adrian Bodnam here at Global Radio in London with help for help for help with today's program and with my prepositions. And I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shear. The show comes to you from Century Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station for the Change Is Easy Radio Network. So long from London. <laughs>